Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Saturday, February 22nd, and today we are, as every Saturday, doing a quick recap of the week before posting all five episodes of The Breakdown, or in this case, four. We took Monday off, but all four episodes in one long, easy-to-consume thread. So the story of this week, I think, was a couple things. First, it was all about DeFi attacks and really the surface area of DeFi that gives rise to new types of attacks. So we saw attacks on BZX that started last weekend and went into this week that brought up a huge number of new questions. So on Monday and Tuesday, actually, we explored both of those things. On Tuesday, we had Chainlink's founder, Sergey Nazarov, to actually talk about them. But I think it's been really interesting to watch the emergence of adversarial thinking in the DeFi community, as in people are now looking at every single protocol, every single platform and saying, how could people attack this in new ways? What can we do to get ahead of it? Which, as we've seen from Bitcoin, can be a very good way to think. The second story of this week has to be the radical dip that happened on Wednesday where we had gotten very comfortable at this $10,000 price level. It had gone down and had gone back up and so on and so forth. And then in five minutes, the price of Bitcoin cratered something like 5%. And it's not exactly clear what it was. It might have been Binance and Coinbase going down at the same time. It might have been something else. But either way, I think it gave rise to a lot of conversations about the power of exchanges in the context of the crypto industry. So lots and lots happening this week. We also saw more from the central bank digital currency front as Sweden pilots a new e-krona. So a lot to dig into. Uh, I hope that you enjoy this set of episodes. And I hope moreover that you are having a great weekend wherever you are. The breakdown will be back on Monday as usual. So until then, stay humble, stack sats, and I will catch you on Monday. Peace, y'all. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Tuesday, February 18th, and today we are going to talk about DeFi, and in particular, this set of attacks or exploitations or whatever you want to call them that have been defining the conversation in not just DeFi, but crypto as a whole for the last two or three days. I think that in many ways, DeFi has come to be the perhaps second greatest focus across this industry after perhaps Bitcoin and just the role of Bitcoin in the world at large. DeFi has surged in attention. It has obviously come to define the Ethereum community. And with recent milestones like a billion dollars being locked in DeFi, it is starting to get noticed from people who are outside the crypto community and who are in the mainstream financial world. And that's why these attacks, these exploitations, which really in some ways represent the first sustained affront to the DeFi system that isn't just theoretical, but is clear and in practice, are so important, right? This is, I think, a pivotal moment in the history and evolution of the DeFi space, and which should have ramifications for how the space evolves. 
First, we're going to talk about what actually happened, and then second, we're going to look at the way that different parts of the community are responding to it. All right, so there are two attacks we're going to be talking about today, and actually, before we dive into them, let's talk about the nomenclature that we're using for a second, because in various reporting and tweets and whatever, these attacks have been called variously uh, hacks, they've been called exploits, they've been called smart people seeing an arbitrage opportunity, and, and that's what makes this interesting, because both of these actions weren't traditional hacks that exploit some security vulnerability, but instead they were well-designed, complex sets of transactions designed to trigger a specific response in one piece of a DeFi daisy chain, effectively, that had major ramifications for everything else within the system. So they are exploits. They are taking advantage of some issue within the DeFi system. However, they're not hacks. For the sake of not having to second guess this all the time, I'm going to use the term attack. I think it's fair given that it had a specific malicious intent to extract money out of the system in a way that was not what the system was designed to do. And certainly members of the DeFi community are not going to be cheering on. So attack is what it is for us. But I do think it's important to, to keep track of what these actually are and, and make sure that we're not just using terms like hack when that's really not what it is. So both of these attacks happened to the project BZX. The first attack happened on Friday right as ETH Denver was getting kicked off and would ultimately net the attacker something like $360,000 worth of ETH. Okay, so here's how that first attack worked. First, the attacker took out a flash loan, which, by the way, don't worry, is a term that we will be talking about much more in just a minute. But anyways, they took out a flash loan for 10,000 ETH worth about $3 million from the platform DYDX, the trading platform. They sent half of that to Compound and half to BZX. The Compound half were used to borrow 112 wrapped BTC, WBTC. With the other half, they shorted 112 WBTC. Now, going back to the Compound half that borrowed, they sent this to Uniswap to lower the price, which then allowed them to profit from the short and ultimately pay back that 10,000 ETH loan. But the crazy thing about this, and this is where the exploit comes in, is that all of this happened in a single transaction, and that is a predication of the structure of flash loans. So you may at this point be wondering, well, what the hell is a flash loan, and why is this thing even available? Trustnodes summarized it this way. They said, basically, you can borrow an asset without putting down any collateral, so for free, but only if you pay it back in the same transaction. You basically code a smart contract that tells the Ethereum network you're going to send the borrowed ETH to one exchange to buy at a lower price and sell at a higher price on another exchange. And since the exchanges are open source and the network knows everything, they figure out whether what you say is true or not, and so you can flash borrow. The flash loan thing sounds incredible because it is an actual loan without requiring credit, but a loan for a few seconds with the lender certain they'll be paid back because of the contract conditions as the transaction just doesn't happen reverts if the loan is not paid back. Now, flash loans came about as a way to help the market for DeFi over-collateralized loans function better. So going over to Coindesk, this is how they describe flash loans. They say, the vast majority of DeFi lending facilities rely on over-collateralized loans. Borrowers can usually only borrow around 75% of the value of their collateral. Although that incentivizes users to pay back loans, it also requires lenders to have very high liquidity sometimes in a diverse range of assets, in order to quickly liquidate loans. Flash loans are instruments that allow traders to liquidate the loans on the lender's behalf. It works by having the trader take out a loan from the lender, 
this time not posting any collateral, then paying back the borrower's debt and collecting the deposit. Using the deposit, they can pay back the original loan and pocket the remaining funds. Again, the idea here is that this all happens instantaneously and with completely open source elements so that the smart contract system can actually see what the price is on the other exchanges that are being used in this arbitrage opportunity so that no one is going to be taken to the cleaner. That's the idea. The problem lies in and where these exploits came from is that DeFi has so many different elements of the stack that are required to make it work that if you can attack one aspect of it, such as the price oracles, you can have a much bigger impact on the whole system. And that's exactly what we saw with this first attack, where the attacker was able to take advantage of the single price oracle driving the system to basically manipulate the price of wrapped Bitcoin in such a way that it was going to be favorable for them. Now, for a relatively small attack, right, the attacker only got away with $360,000 worth of Ether in this first attack, there was a much more pronounced reaction. And I think that that's because DeFi is so at the heart of what the Ethereum community is trying to do right now, which means those outside of it who are not fans of Ethereum use any attack like this or any just failure like this as a way to suggest that the entire project has failed or is doomed to fail, and those in it get fiercely defensive. So that's kind of what we saw over this weekend is people really talking pretty existentially one way or another about this attack. And in particular, the thing that kept coming up that I saw over and over again was the idea of just how decentralized is DeFi, right? I thought actually Maya Zahavi summed it up really well. She said, the attack surfaced some known and underplayed risks. One, a flash loan means that there is no real cost to financing an attack. Two, it showed how centralized Oracle manipulation is. And three, it showed that we still need circuit breakers built into protocols, which is just another version of centralization. Again, this is where the conversation was over the course of the weekend. However, then it happened again. The Coindesk headline today reads, DeFi project BZX exploited for second time in a week, loses 630k in Ether. So this attack happened late Monday night, early Tuesday morning, depending on where you were. And it was based on a similar premise, although it was a little bit different in its execution. Larry from the block summed it up, and I thought he did a really good job with this. So one, take out a flash loan of 7,500 ETH. Two, trade 3,517 ETH on synthetics for $940,000 worth of SUSD, synthetics USD, at price close to $1. 3. Use 900 ETH to market buy Synthetics USD on Kyber and Uniswap to push the price to more than $2. 5. Borrow 6,796 ETH on BZX by using the SUSD as collateral, much more than he was supposed to because price of SUSD appeared higher. 6. Use the borrowed ETH and the remaining ETH balance to repay the flash loan and net 2,379 ETH in profit. So if the exploit previously was the price of wrapped BTC, in this case, it was the price of synthetic USD, which basically allowed the attacker to pump the price of synthetic USD from one to more than $2. So basically, the exploit here was being able to market by this synthetic USD, this synthetic version of a US dollar, over and over and over again. Someone else, another analyst, estimated that it was 20 rounds of purchasing, basically. 
to drive up that price so that when the oracles looked to see how much the collateral was worth, it was worth much more than it should have been because of that exploit on the price. Now, the net of all this is that the attacker walked away with something like $630,000 in Ether, but you can see how much more complicated this is than just calling it a hack or something, right? This is just taking advantage in some ways of the low liquidity of a lot of these synthetic assets to be able to drive up the price in a way that these automated systems based on price oracles can't accommodate. That's what I wanted to get into from here is what the actual reaction has been and where it leaves DeFi. Picking up from where we just were, when Coindesk's tweet said bad actors have made off with $630,000 worth of Ether, Crypto Bobby wrote, are these really bad actors or just smart people taking advantage of bad system design? Me thinks the latter. Now the conversation in the thread was all over the place. One response said, there's an ethical hacker approach to these problems, they chose the unethical. I'm sure they're smart. Someone responds to that person though and says, this wasn't a hack though, it's arbitrage taking advantage of thin liquidity of the DeFi space. Now this point was also brought up in a thread by Amin Sir, who wrote, the recent attacks on BZX have little to do with BZX or flash loans. The culprit here are the decentralized exchanges which have poor liquidity and are prone to manipulation. Given exchange depth, the amounts available for flash loans, and use of DEX price oracles, these results are inevitable. Using price oracles that bring in outside information can help, but the real fix is to use DEXs that actually have depth, and that's not likely to happen anytime soon, even after ETH 2.0, because the underlying consensus protocols limits DEX's speeds. That said, BZX and other DeFi building blocks need to test their exposure to manipulable DEXs more thoroughly before opening up again. Now, this question of pausing operations was another one that was a big part of the conversation. So, Taylor Monahan wrote, Stop giving teams, products, and platforms the benefit of the doubt. BZX is repeatedly f***ed up. Repeatedly. At least six times. How the hell were they able to lose another 650k? I give zero f***s about writing bad code. All code has bugs. What comes next is what matters. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me six times and lol, no it's cool. DeFi hype. So her point here is that this has been a consistent theme and problem with this particular company and that she believes that this company should not be trusted and that if anyone had any doubt of that, the fact that they basically were subject to the same exact type of attack just a couple days after without really trying to address the attack surface of the first attack should be more than enough evidence for anyone else. I think this is a salient point because even if one is excited about a space, you don't want incompetent companies ruining it for everyone else. And I don't know as much as Taylor does about BZX. I haven't been watching them until this weekend. However, if what she says is true and there is a consistent pattern here, that's not who you want as your standard bearer in the same way that Bitcoin exchanges don't want to all be defined by Mt. Gox or someone else, right? You want the best who are serious about this sort of challenge and, and the reality that this is a whole new arena of challenges that are going to be faced by DeFi to be the ones who are out there learning and reacting and responding. That's just the case. And I think that gets me to my major thought about this, which is that we have had this interesting conversation in the DeFi space and the Ethereum space more broadly over the last few weeks, months, whatever, about how ready for primetime DeFi is, and in particular, whether Ethereum and DeFi need more marketing. The thing that's interesting to me about DeFi right now is that it is a community of enfranchised early adopters who understand, in some ways, at least, at least to their own money, 
the risks of being involved. These aren't people who are being convinced that they need to put their money in this system rather than the stock market. It's not pensioners who have serious life implications for losing something if everything goes belly up. It is, like I said, enfranchised early adopters. That means that when these things happen, we can have these intense, real debates, but without the potential for people being existentially hurt. I don't think that we want to give that up yet. I don't think that the Ethereum community and the DeFi community should want to give that up yet. If this happened in the context of having millions more people involved, you can bet that it would be much more significant. You also would see much more vicious attacks, right? The more that this space grows, the more of these types of attacks are going to happen. And the reality is that we don't know what the attacks of the future are going to look like. We're not going to be able to predict them all because people are very smart and they're going to figure out all of the wrinkles in this new system. That's okay. There are plenty of people out there, including folks who aren't just DeFi partisans, who think that there could be some major upsides, right? Alex Kruger, Kruger Macro, who's a pretty skeptical guy by nature, says, Flash loans offer instantaneous collateral free liquidity. This is legendary. Just like a liquid derivatives market brought discipline to Bitcoin, flash loans bring discipline to DeFi. A few will profit at the expense of the careless and in the process make the market more efficient and resilient. Need to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Now, of course, there is another reason to be glad that this is still an early adopter market that's relatively small, which is summed up by Preston Byrne, who writes, DeFi is already regulated. The government just doesn't think it's a big enough deal to enforce against. Yet. Now, ultimately, this space is still in its infancy, but I do tend to agree with Larry Cermak from The Block, who wrote, It's DeFi exploitation season. The first exploit showed a lot of people that something like that is even possible. Now it's go time. I think we're going to see a lot more of this type of attack coming, and it may not be exactly the same. It may be a little bit different, but when you see people who are able to instantaneously walk away with $300,000, $600,000, it's going to have a lot of eyes look over at this space in ways that we may not like. So here's the bad news and the good news about this. The bad news is that I do think that we're going to see a lot more of this type of attack. The other bad news is that this is going to provide a lot of narrative ammunition for those who don't think DeFi is valuable or who think it creates so much systemic risk that any upside is mitigated. The good news is that there was never a chance that DeFi was going to make it to the mainstream without a period of pain, right? Without an exploitation season where these systems were really stress-tested and pressure-tested in a serious way, not just theoretically, but by people who want to take advantage of them to make money. That's happening now, and I think it's going to happen more. The good news about this is that if DeFi does make it through to the other side, and particularly if it does so in a way where the D, the decentralized in decentralized finance, remains and is sustained, then I think the whole space is stronger for having gone through it. So that is my take on this. I think that these attacks are the first of what are likely to be many more that we see attempted. I think that the fact that they are happening in the context of this enfranchised early adopter market is a good thing. And I think that it should create or remind us that it's valuable perhaps to have some amount of inherent conservatism when it comes to playing with real money. 
DeFi is playing with live ammunition and we need to treat it that way. Let me know what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at NLW. I'm really interested. I think this is a fascinating moment and I will catch you tomorrow for another episode of The Breakdown. Peace. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Wednesday, February 19th, and today we are going to be doing two things. First, we're going to spend just a little bit of time touching on some of the key news from the last couple days. The whole conversation around the DeFi attacks on BZX has taken a lot of the energy and time on this podcast, which will be the case again today. And I want to make sure that we're not completely glossing over a couple interesting bits of news. But then second, we are in fact going to turn our attention back to these DeFi attacks. In specific, we're going to actually hear from Sergey Nazarov, the CEO of Chainlink. Yesterday, Chainlink announced that they would be helping BZX transition from their current Oracle approach to something that is hopefully more decentralized and resistant to the types of attacks that we've seen. The reason that I thought it was worth continuing this conversation is that, to me, DeFi is unarguably one of the most important parts of the entire crypto industry. It is something that is driving a huge amount of energy and excitement and optimism for the future. And these attacks really represent something incredibly important and novel, which is the idea that in the future, exploits won't just be hacks and security flaws, but about the fundamental designs of the system and how people can take advantage of them, how people can take advantage of low liquidity and smart contracts. In other words, they're a much more sophisticated type of attack than just some sort of brute force exchange attack hack. And I think that it's really worth spending time understanding what happened and how this can be avoided in the future. And that's what Sergey is really here to help us do. But first, let's look at a little bit of the news from the last day or so. One of the banner headlines from yesterday was that the Bloomberg campaign had announced their financial reform package and that it made mention of crypto. Now, in terms of what it specifically said, there wasn't necessarily a huge amount of exciting or unexpected or new or different things, right? They said, quote, cryptocurrencies have become an asset class worth hundreds of billions of dollars, yet regulatory oversight remains fragmented and underdeveloped. For all the promise of the blockchain, Bitcoin, and initial coin offerings, there's also plenty of hype, fraud, and criminal activity. Their plan went on to basically say that they want to clarify who is responsible for overseeing different parts of the space, figuring out a framework to determine when tokens are actual securities. Obviously, they're focused like all administrations would be and should be on preventing fraud, and they want to clarify the tax regime. So this is really just a sort of a duh package, right? In the sense that you should hope that our regulatory apparatus is capable of engaging with these new types of assets in their own terms. And that's really what the Bloomberg campaign is pushing for. Now, the two things that are notable about this are, one, that it exists at all. And I think this was really captured well by Niraj from Coin Center, who tweeted, what a ride it's been watching this once tiny hobbyist issue grow into something presidential candidates have plans for. I think that point really can't be overstated, just how notable and what a milestone moment it is in some ways that Bloomberg, who is very quickly becoming the or at least one of the two contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination, 
has seen fit to put this as a part of his financial reform package. Now, the one other little notable detail is that this isn't taking the same blockchain, not Bitcoin line that we've seen. It talks about for all the promise of Bitcoin alongside blockchain. And that's a pretty notable thing, right? It at least suggests that there is a willingness to engage and an openness to Bitcoin, not just the technology behind it being something interesting. So certainly something that we'll have to watch for more signal on. Again, it's just one little bit of information inside a larger proposal that is itself only partially filled out, but still notable. Now, a second little bit of news today that got people nervous. I noticed a tweet from Larry Cermak over at the block this morning that Maker was up 15% in the last four hours and, quote, some weird transactions happening as well. Now, in the thread, there's a lot of discussion around what might be happening. Someone noticed that it seemed like Uniswap was being drained of Maker. Uh, Larry talks about how there was a huge surge in volume on Bitfinex and OKX as well. And someone who's clearly trying to accumulate as much as possible. Udi Wertheimer says maybe Maker or someone affiliated with Maker is buying them up as a white hat thing. Larry Cermak says that's what I was thinking, because if there is just a tiny chance someone could pull it off, i.e. some sort of strategic attack, it's not worth the risk. But Maker could also activate a delay in the governance process, I think. Udi responds, maybe buying up the tokens will make it easier to get the vote for the delay pass. I don't know, just thinking out loud. Taylor Monahan, who we heard from yesterday, also chimed in saying, it could be the Maker team got in touch with known whales ask them to remove liquidity from market. Less liquidity would also result in price spike due to shallower market even without the huge buys. Here's 8 million removed from Uniswap pool. It would be interesting to see if known maker whales and or maker team are all doing the same. So this one is pretty unresolved unknown, but I think it goes back to the conversation in our main conversation today, which is new attack surfaces that are being exploited in DeFi, or at least a concern that in the wake of these attacks, more and more focus is going to be spent on where there are chinks in the armor of DeFi that can be exploited. So with that, let's shift over to the main part of our conversation, our interview with Sergey from Chainlink. Sergey Nazarov is the CEO of Chainlink, which is a decentralized Oracle product, right? Chainlink's job is to try to create a mechanism for smart contracts and on-chain functions to take advantage of off-chain data. And in particular, in the context of DeFi, the data that most matters to smart contracts is price data. As we've seen with these attacks on BZX over the last couple of days, part of the challenge was price oracles that were reporting data that was, if correct, correct only after a manipulation about one source. So in the first attack, the price of WBTZ was attacked, and the price oracle was then reflecting something wrong, allowing people to make off with more gains than the system should have otherwise let them because that price was artificially deflated on WBTC. The second attack was something similar, but was about driving the price of synthetic USD up. And then that extra price increased the amount of collateralization that was happening, allowing the attacker to take away more ETH than the smart contract system should have allowed them to because that synthetic USD price, rather than tracking to $1 as it should have, got up over $2. So in some ways, both of these issues had at least a little bit to do with price oracles. So today, I wanted to have Sergey come in and explain a little bit more. Now, Chainlink did announce yesterday that they would be officially helping BZX make this change. But in some ways, the interview isn't really about that. It's more about the idea of price oracles and where they fit in DeFi in general. Now, one quick note on this interview, for the sake of presenting it as the conversation happened, it's very, very lightly edited. So it's 
much more natural, much less produced than normal. Keep that in mind as you're listening, and I hope you enjoy. All right, Sergey, it is so great to have you back on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time. Great. Thank you for having me. Okay, so uh, this has been obviously the major topic of conversation over the last three or four days, these attacks and what they mean for DeFi. And what we're interested in talking to you about today is specifically the roles of price oracles in this in these attacks. So I guess just by way of starting, can you actually give our listeners um, a quick primer on the role of price oracles in DeFi? Sure, sure. So what, what people are seeking to do in DeFi is replicate a tra- traditional financial product like a money market or a derivatives product. And all of these products function on the basis of price data. So what that means is uh, from a technical point of view, you have the the product itself, which is in this case, smart contract code, uh, logic written in something like Solidity on Ethereum. And, and, And that Solidity defines how the contract, how the financial product will behave, how much interest it will pay, who will uh, benefit from, a de- from an outcome from a derivative, you know, what settlement price should be of certain futures contracts. Um, not, not what, but, but how do we react to price? So it, it codifies what the contract is about. But the, the contract is then entirely dependent on the inputs into it. So if you input one price, there's one interest rate. You input a different price, there's a different one. You input one, um, you know, one threshold for market prices getting, getting to a certain high, you have one price for settlement, you have a, or a different outcome for a derivative, right? So I, I think the thing that's actually important is how DeFi contracts differ from how people conceptualize smart contracts up until this point. People conceptualize smart contracts right now in two slightly, um, slightly limited ways. The, the first one is people assume that smart contracts on Ethereum or Hyperledger or any, any of these networks can speak with external data sources. Despite being called smart contracts, they in fact cannot. So the security model that secures those state changes and that logic which defines the contract means that it's computed on multiple independent uh, redundant node operators, which their job is not to go get data and input data because they, they can't really come to consensus about these various external values. That's, that's, that kind of breaks some of the security model and it forces you to choose who's responsible for that. And basically you arrive at a place where smart contract code can only be about data that's already inside um, the network where it began to exist. And this, is, this, this idea has come from the fact that everything that's, almost everything that's a smart contract so far is a token. And uh, the, the token generates its own data on chain by generating tokens. And then all the data that the contract needs to interact with because it began on chain is still on chain. And so there, there's no problem there of interacting with external systems for price data. Now, the, 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 the other nuance is that these DeFi contracts, they're starting to redefine what a smart contract is, right? So people call a tokenization contract a smart contract, and they call a DeFi contract a smart contract. But the attack surface area of a contract related to generating tokens is only its on-chain code. That is kind of the only place from which you can attack it and also whoever holds private keys related to moving the tokens and things like that. But with the DeFi contract, you have an entirely new attack surface area called an Oracle. So what the Oracle does is it sits between uh, a secure system like Ethereum where where smart contracts are computed and external off-chain systems that know about things outside of Ethereum. 
And, and these systems don't have private keys. They don't have a way to get that data into a DeFi contract. And they don't have a way for that data to be particularly reliable. And this is what an Oracle or a decentralized Oracle network in the case of Chainlink does, is it's supposed to securely provide external data into, um, into a smart contract so that that smart contract can know about things like what is the overall larger market price and it can, it, 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 if the Oracle represents the larger market price accurately, then the decentralized financial product has the correct input and can function correctly. If the Oracle provides an incorrect market price, then even the best written, most secure, most audited decentralized financial product uh, will fail because that input is, is incorrect. And the, 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 the nuance here is that when you talk about a smart contract in this DeFi context, you're actually talking about something that is composed of an on-chain component, which is the code, and of an off-chain component, which is the Oracle. Now, the on-chain component has been you know, built and, and heavily reviewed by a large group of people, but the Oracle component is, is right now just, just really coming into existence into a secure form, largely through our work at Chainlink and kind of creating a decentralized mechanism to guarantee that the input into a DeFi contract is in fact reliable enough to trigger it. And therefore you can now once again call a DeFi smart contract, a smart contract because both the on-chain uh, code is reliable and also the off-chain code related to all the, all the events that effectively control the contract also now reaches a high enough threshold to be considered uh, you know, reliable enough to be to be included in the definition of a smart contract, if 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 that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really really helpful background because the the place that I wanted to go with the with this is that it was the basically oracles have been at the center of the problems that we've seen with BZX over the last couple of days, right? It, can you explain just a little bit about how price oracles became uh, part of this attack service for for these attacks that we saw? Sure. So, so there's actually a few dimensions and a few attack vectors related to oracles. Uh, one of them is the oracle mechanism itself. So there's the software, there's the or, the or the code that's responsible for acting as a data transport layer that's responsible for transporting data into the contract. And then there's the data source. So the data source is either uh, the data aggregator or an exchange API or in this case, it was actually an on-chain data source where the price data was generated on-chain. But you actually have these two dimensions of risk with oracles. One is the, 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 the code related to securing the oracle, and the other one is the data source, its security, the quality of that data source, the, um, the ease of manipulating it, and, and, and this capacity to, to manipulate it is often also mitigated by redundancy. So uh, in, in, in short general terms, one of the risks that we've, we've been seeing unfold is some people have said that perhaps an on-chain price oracle is, is the only price um, feed that you need. And the, the reality that that is that that narrative is, is putting a substantial amount of people at risk because not only is it not a good idea, the, the first point is that it's, it's really not a good idea to use one um, source of price data. For, for example, in Chainlink, we do not actually directly feed uh, cryptocurrency exchange price data into our large reference data contracts. We use data aggregators that are experienced high quality teams 
like uh, BNC, Kaiko, Amber Data, Crypto Compare, you know, a, a whole a whole bunch of other ones that are experienced teams that that smooth out data. Once once that data is smoothed out, uh, then you can you can consider the data source as mitigating the the these large amount of, of risks. So the the first point is is not even whether you're using them on-chain data source or an off-chain data source, a cryptocurrency API or a DEX price, it's that you, you, you don't really want to put yourself at the mercy of um, a single data source for, for a market that could very quickly swing. So part of the problem is that even if the snapshot that you took when you were building the DeFi product said that this market is very high in volume and then it would, therefore it would cost a lot to manipulate it, volume swings extremely quickly in the cryptocurrency space. And so a month or two later, that market on that DEX or, or that cryptocurrency exchange that you chose as the market to, to power your DeFi DAP could suddenly be thinly traded and could be a very risky dependency, even, even if it's correctly feeding data into your, into your DeFi application. So the, I, I think the first nuance point to this uh, problem is it, it is, it is probably not a good idea to go to one exchange API because the snapshot at the time of your building a DeFi application says that that is, that is the market where, where price discovery happens. You're pretty, much almost always, you're pretty much always better off going to a data aggregator or ideally multiple data aggregators and allowing them to smooth out all these risks, which is, which is a significant role that they play in this ecosystem for people that are sensitive to high quality data um, and crypto traders and people that use them. But in financial markets, this is what data companies do is they smooth out this massive dimension of risk. And, and, and that's, that's a big part of what they risk, what, what, what they exist. So the first thing is perhaps not using a single uh, exchange or a single market that could become rapidly um, different in volume is, is perhaps a, a thing to keep in mind. The, the second level of risk is the level of risk with DEX price oracles. Now, there's a number of papers uh, around front running issues with DEXs like Flash Boys 2.0 from, um, from Ari Jules and Phil Diane and, and, and lots of other good folks that, that, and that, that say that there's certain ways to manipulate existing DEX, um, DEX prices. And, and, and other, other than that, it's, it's one of these things where because DEXs are, are sometimes very thinly traded or have large swings in volume in and out of them, you, you basically arrive at a situation where the, the capacity to manip manipulate those markets is, is actually sometimes greater than centralized markets. And there's, there's a big, um, so, so there's two levels of risk here. The first level is you chose one data source for, for a market. That market became thinly traded. Uh, it became easier to manipulate. And, and in, in addition to all that, it, it was a, it was an on-chain DEX about which there's been significant research that, that the prices in, in that environment can sometimes be manipulated. Now, now, sometimes it's not worth manipulating them at certain costs, but if they become a price oracle for your uh, highly leveraged or, or high value decentralized uh, derivatives or futures product, then perhaps all of a sudden manipulating those on-chain prices is, is sufficiently useful or valuable to justify those costs. And, and so that's why both using one single uh, data source is a huge risk, but using um, something that from a technical point of view has certain additional risks for manipulation, like, like an on-chain DEX price, 
and attaching your market to that when that market can rapidly grow in value and give people a reason to attack it is, is generally speaking, something we, we caution people against. The, the way that we approach this is we have multiple independent node operators pulling from uh, multiple high quality data aggregators. For example, even, even our smallest Oracle networks never go below seven nodes. And each of those seven nodes is connected to uh, its own data aggregator, which then smooths out price data from, from many, many different exchanges. Likewise, if new exchanges appear, if uh, swings in volume happen, it's accounted for by these high quality data aggregator and data, kind of data companies. So the, the things to be really cautious about are both the security of the Oracle mechanism. So how is that software redundantly secured? Is the software itself of a, of a high level of quality? Does it implement trusted execution environments? Does it implement uh, you know, various signing procedures and secure messaging procedures? All, all these types of things. And then the second point is making sure that if you really wanna dig into these things, you understand the world of uh, financial data and, 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 and price data, which, which is a complicated question. Now, our hope is that DeFi developers don't actually need to do that. DeFi developers should be able to show up to an infrastructure where they have uh, an, a, a, a price that can actually include on-chain prices if they want, or it can include off-chain prices. So we have something called a meta Oracle capability where we can compose a larger market price from on-chain prices, off-chain prices. Right now it's, it's pr predominantly driven almost entirely by off-chain price discovery in centralized exchanges. But I, I, I think the way that this space and the way people build things in this space should look is not that people are forced to solve the Oracle problem when what they're trying to do is build a decentralized financial application, the way it should look is the same, is the same way more mature spaces, more of technology look is where uh, people who make applications have a stack of here's where I'm going to run my logic. So that could be something like Ethereum. Here's how I'm going to connect to, to various external systems. And in our case, we have a lot of expertise and experience with deciding or, or helping people decide what high quality data providers are or high quality method methodologies would be. And therefore, we're able to provide uh, a reliable on-chain price that's both decentralized at the Oracle level and, in this case, relative to this attack, uh, decentralized at the data, data source level. And, and I think that the lesson of this attack is kind of that both of those things are very important, both the middleware security component and the data source security component. And, um, and that sometimes you, you really need to consider if if something, something like an on-chain genera generator of prices like a DEX is, is, you know, if those additional risks are actually worth, um, worth whatever you're getting from it. In my experience so far, the, the risks of, of an on-chain DEX price used as an Oracle greatly outweigh the benefits. And realistically, even, even we've seen so far in things like our Meta Oracle capability is the ability to implement uh, something called pricing bands using off-chain price data to ensure that a on-chain Oracle does uh, an on-chain DEX doesn't deviate too far from market prices. So I think DEXs are great and I think they're doing a lot of great things for the space. And I, I think they're, they're improving and they're going in the right direction, but linking the outcome of your very high value, uh, kind of very fast moving market 
to an on-chain DEX that whose code is in, entirely open and has has a, different ways that people can approach attacking it, and and that being the only thing that triggers the the outcomes in your market is is a significant risk that uh, we're we we we've so far been able to solve with what we've made. So we we just recommend either people find a way to decentralize their 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 data sources and their oracle mechanism or use something like us you know whichever whichever works for them but um if 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 if, if things aren't considered in this more holistic way both by users who want to understand what is the security of a DeFi dap and by developers of the dap like what are my security risks in relation to oracles and data sources in addition to contract code then it's very possible that uh, this type of thing will continue, and I don't. I don't think that'll be great for for the space in general. So that that's kind of where I wanted to to go, and maybe leave this is is what you think the impact of these attacks on the space are. You know, it it sounds like you guys, based on the announcement yesterday, are are now actively helping BZX think through this for the long term. Uh, you've mentioned or made mention of of some of the lessons that already we're potentially seeing around using that kind of Dex data as a as their single source of of pricing information and the vulnerabilities that creates. But what are the other lessons or take Takeaways. And I guess, do you see this sort of attack happening more or just, you know, new forms of attacks happening more as DeFi gets more popular? Yeah, I think these attacks are happening predominantly towards these derivatives and, and futures and highly leveraged, high, fast moving uh, markets with, with larger and larger amounts, because there's a way to make, get a payoff there. So there, the ratio of effort to payoff is relatively low. So that's, and, and the numbers are growing as DeFi grows. So what that means that, what that means is that the, the, if the ratio of effort to payoff is, is getting better and better, then attacks like this move up on people's target lists. Now, realistically, as, as DeFi grows, if, if people don't successfully secure their Oracle mechanism through, through whatever collection of approaches they're comfortable with, then the, the losses will become larger. And as, as the value in different subsets of the DeFi ecosystem, whether that's lending or some kind of collateral-based system or, or whatever it is, um, as, as the value there increases, and if the Oracle mechanism doesn't improve in security, then those things also move up on people's target list. So suddenly the, the, the ratio, maybe if the ratio of effort is still relatively high, but now the rewards are very, very high. So... I, I think we, we see a number of people out there that have different Oracle mechanisms, some of which they baked without um, an external audit, some of which, uh, that's, that's speaking to the security of the uh, Oracle software itself, some of which is powered by price data feeds where volume swings really regularly in centralized markets. And I think one of the things that's just been saving people is that the, the ratio of effort to payoff is still low, relatively low, but DeFi is definitely picking up speed. There's definitely growth. I mean, we recently passed a billion dollars and there's, there's more and more usage of it. And I, I think the reality is that as the amount of value that goes into DeFi increases, you'll, you'll see a, a, a progression of these types of attacks around different, along sector, around different sectors of DeFi. So perhaps in some of more of these attacks will happen in derivatives and futures-based platforms with high volume, fast-moving markets, but that subsection of DeFi will probably become hardened on this against this pretty quickly 
to a degree because we're working with a lot of people in that space to, to effectively solve this problem um, as well as other problems related to Oracle reports that, you know, so that people can't, can't manipulate their markets. Now, once that uh, section of the DeFi ecosystem gets hardened, and if the value in DeFi keeps increasing, I think people will start to focus on, on other markets that they'll figure out ways to, to conduct, uh, conduct all kinds of multi-layered kind of derivatives or shorting schemes related to an Oracle failure in places where there isn't a fast moving market, something with lending or something based on collateral or, or something where you can't immediately trade in and out at large amounts, but maybe you can create a derivative or a short uh, around, around some kind of Oracle event related to, um, related to that collateral lending market and, and, then, and then have a huge payout that way. And the, I, I mean, I, I, th I think the reality is that part of the reason why this problem persists is because the lo losses haven't been big enough, right? So the, if, if, if the loss at some point becomes big enough, you're going to see people take this as seriously as, they, as they've taken cryptocurrency uh, exchange security, right? So what I've seen happen in it with exchange security over my, you know, I don't even know how many years I've been in this space now. I mean, building smart contracts for seven, mining for years before that. But over, over all that time, what I've consistently seen is that some kind of exchange fails in, in how exchanges secure the value they provide to users uh, through private key security issues or, or whatever collection of issues. And then the, 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 the volume or the usage shifts to cryptocurrency exchanges that do have good security guarantees. And, and as the value of cryptocurrency exchange usage grows, the, the losses become larger and larger, right? Because everybody has more money. So it, this, this seems like a very analogous situation to me that as, as DeFi grows, and especially if it starts growing rapidly, the, the people that have proper security for their Oracle mechanism will be able to explain that to their community and, and show themselves to be secure. And then if somebody's Oracle mechanism fails, much like you know, with cryptocurrency exchanges, if somebody's private key security scheme fails, then that becomes a top of mind kind of issue for users, not, not just for developers, but, but for users of that product. And then those users historically looking at cryptocurrency exchanges migrate all of their usage rapidly to secure systems that, that can explain how they're hardened against, uh, against certain attacks. So I, I think the growth of DeFi will, is a very good thing. I think it'll create more incentive to attack increasingly varied parts of DeFi. And what I'm very hopeful of is that, you know, Coindesk and Unithaniel and and kind of the community can start to think about how do we mitigate this risk before there is a big loss? Because big losses by our community, by, by DeFi, paint DeFi in a negative light, just like the DAO or large cryptocurrency hacks paint their respective systems in a negative light. And I, I think the thing that's worth avoiding or, or worth kind of learning some lessons about from, from how cryptocurrency exchange hacks and, and smart contract hacks have uh, affected certain sectors is that the, the really, maybe it's not a good idea to wait for that. Like may, maybe the better option is to somehow pay much more attention to this security risk such that the losses never reach a level where people are saying that, you know, oh, DeFi doesn't work because, you know, I heard that there was a hack for $300 million. 
I mean, I don't, I don't want to hear that. I want, I want DeFi to keep growing at a massively fast rate. But the reality is that that's a mix between how many users want to use DeFi and how able DeFi is to deliver on both returns and the technical guarantees that DeFi, decentralized finance, seeks to deliver. And even if those guarantees are not fully realized from a security point of view initially, they're, they're definitely something that I think we should start realizing more as the value secured by DeFi increases. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things that I was discussing yesterday on the podcast was exactly this, that right now we're experiencing these new challenges, figuring out new types of attack surfaces and obviously new types of fixes in the context of a, a relatively enfranchised, empowered early adopter crowd, right? Who are by and large savvy to the types of risks that it entails. And I think that's actually greatly to DeFi's benefit. You know, the, the stakes of some of these types of financial financial products are, are massive if they go not just mainstream, but just get even a little bit bigger. And so the fact that right now these sorts of challenges can be worked out without um, more systemic risk uh, of, and risk among people who really can't afford to take it, I think is, is to the benefit of, of everyone who's invested in the long-term uh, long uh, health and growth and opportunity of DeFi. But listen, Sergey, I really appreciate all your thoughts. Uh, it's always great to have you here. Um, I'm really excited to see what you guys continue to build in this context, and uh, and, and what we learn from from you know each each of these attacks, and unfortunately the ones that are probably yet to come as well. So thanks so much for your time. Yes, thank you for having me again. Great chatting with you. One of the things that I thought was most interesting listening to Sergey in that interview was this idea that almost that DeFi is going through a natural evolutionary growth process where it is going to have attacks that come after it and try to exploit new attack surfaces. And that in some ways, this is akin to the early days of crypto exchanges where attackers exploited basically everything that could be attacked in the context of crypto exchanges, and it took a lot of painful learning. By learning from the mistakes of exchanges, by taking more seriously the security of every aspect of the DeFi chain, we may be able to avoid some of that pain, which is obviously to the benefit of everyone who's invested in the success of DeFi in the space as a whole. So really interesting thoughts. And for me, just reinforcement of why these attacks were so meaningful. It wasn't that a huge amount of money was made away with, but they are warning shots. They are shots across the bow of what could come and why we need to be so conscientious of everything that we're doing in DeFi, especially while it's still early. Anyways, guys, that is it for today's episode of The Breakdown. I hope that you enjoyed this interview and I hope you enjoyed the quick news briefing at the beginning. We will be back tomorrow with another episode. And until then, thanks for listening wherever you are. I'll catch you soon. Peace. Welcome back to The Breakdown and everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. 
It's Thursday, February 20th, and today we are doing something a little bit different. We're going to look through the news, but in the context of a larger overarching idea, which is that crypto is not a single industry. When we discuss this crypto industry or the blockchain space or whatever you want to call it, we often speak about it in very monolithic terms, as though everything is a part of the same ecosystem. And arguably for a long time that has been the case. However, the more that the industry matures, the less realistic it is to lump everything together. And so today I want to look through the news and discover that there are really at least five different subcategories that we could be discussing things in. And I want to talk a little bit about why it might matter for us to start having a better differentiation. So that's the theme of the day, why crypto is not a single industry. All right, so let's look at our first category of news. Well, we are still trying to fully come to grips with understanding what happened with these BZX attacks earlier this week. And at this point, it's not so much about BZX, it's not so much about the particular amounts lost, it is about understanding new risk profiles in DeFi. In many ways, the conversation that I've seen has been a coming of adversarial thinking to DeFi. Now, adversarial thinking is something that's very intrinsic at this point to the Bitcoin community, where people within the community who want it to succeed are constantly asking, what could go wrong? How could people attack this? What do we do if that happens? I mean, even today in the Bitcoin community, which is a completely separate thing, as we'll get into, there is an entire conversation about miner concentrations sparked by a post on Coindesk's new op-ed platform by Hasu. So anyways, adversarial thinking has come in a big way to DeFi as people start to look through every major platform, every major protocol and ask how could it be attacked and what the problems are. And I think in some ways this week has shown just even based on the difference in how these attacks were carried out that DeFi is a whole phenomenon unto itself where the attack surface simply doesn't look the same as it did for crypto spot trading. It is a fundamentally different thing based on programmable finance and the composability of finance and really needs to be taken in its own terms. So that's the DeFi side of things. Now let's look at our next category of conversation. We have a whole slew of stories from the world of nominally enterprise blockchain, or maybe just a better way to put it is blockchains interacting with the traditional financial system. So this isn't about cryptocurrencies and digital assets. It isn't really about programmable finance per se. It's about what blockchain tech can do for the existing financial infrastructure. So example one, Paxos is going to be offering the first live blockchain-based settlement for U.S. equities. So basically when equities deals are made and sold, there's everyday settlement. So at the end of the day, the deals that have been made have to get cleared out and cash gets exchanged, the equities get exchanged, etc., etc. And this happens through clearinghouses who actually facilitate that settlement. Well, Paxos is bringing this to bear on the blockchain. Last year, they announced that their pilot with Credit Suisse had been given a no action letter from the SEC allowing them to proceed. And today they announced they're actually able to get it running. So this is inside baseball. This is infrastructure for the legacy financial world. Similar news came out of Australia, where the National Stock Exchange announced that it planned to launch a digital ledger technology program to compete with the Australian Stock Exchange, which is itself building a blockchain-based replacement for its clearing system. 
Again, more of this insider financial infrastructure type of thing. One more quick bit of news in this same category came from the Bank of Korea that is looking at building a blockchain-based system to bring better record-keeping to the bond market in Korea, which is one of the largest bond markets in Asia. So again, the point here is that we have this set of news all around the digitization and the blockchainification of financial infrastructure that has practically nothing to do with DeFi, right? And anything we were just talking about. And very little to do with what we're talking about next, which is governments racing to figure out their digital currency strategies. On now to our third clearly distinct and differentiated topic, which is central bank digital currencies and moreover the battle for the future of money and how central banks are going to deal with the emergence of new types of digital monies. So Brazil has said that they are going to launch a quote near instant payment system called PIX that is designed to speed the system up and reduce costs for fiat transfers between individuals and businesses. Now, they said explicitly that this is about a response to cryptocurrencies. The president of the Central Bank of Brazil, Roberto Campos Neto, said, PIX came from a need for people to have a payment instrument that is both cheap, fast, transparent, and secure. If we think about what has happened in terms of the creation of bitcoins, cryptocurrencies, and other encrypted assets, it comes from the need to have an instrument with such characteristics. So this will not be a cryptocurrency per se, but it is being designed in response to the force that cryptocurrencies are creating in the world. So now let's go through quickly, let's review the context that we've had for our quote-unquote crypto industry just in one day. We've had one, composable programmable money and what that means. We've had two, security settlement and basic infrastructure for the legacy financial system that has literally nothing to do with token assets. Three, we have central banks trying to figure out how they're going to respond to new competition, competition that they've never really felt before in the same way. But let's move on to our fourth topic, which is completely different again. Fourth up on our list of stories that don't really seem to have anything to do with each other, but yet are uncomfortably lumped into one quote-unquote industry, is that Juventus, the soccer giant out of Italy, has become the latest sports team in what is now becoming a trend to experiment with NFT-based digital collectibles. Juventus is partnering with Sorare to create digital cards for their fans. So this is a licensing deal through which Juventus will be partnering with Sorare to create digital cards that represent their famous soccer players like Cristiano Ronaldo in digital collectible form on the ERC-721 standard. These are fun, interesting, cool ways for fans to engage with the team. They could represent the future of sports engagement, but they have literally nothing to do. And I mean literally nothing to do with central bank digital currencies or the settlement of equities in more efficient ways. These are such fundamentally different fields that it almost feels insane to talk about them together. And so let's go to the fifth and final of the categories of stories that we'll talk about today. In this quote-unquote crypto industry, which comes back to Bitcoin, but not just Bitcoin as a crypto asset, but Bitcoin as a hedge against what is increasingly a crazy world. For Bitcoiners, they're looking out across an economic scenario where the world's second largest economy is absolutely crippled and brought to its knees and effectively non-functioning right now because of coronavirus. And yet in the US, 
stocks and other assets and equities are reaching all-time highs, right, on the back of a decade or more of incredibly cheap money. And this conversation about Bitcoin in the macro environment is so fundamentally different, again, from everything that we've talked about today. It's different even though it relates to the financial markets, to this idea of blockchain as infrastructure. It's different fundamentally from the idea of NFTs sharing only this context of digital scarcity, which is one of the chief innovations of Bitcoin. So the point that I'm trying to make is that just taking a single day's snapshot, there are at least five different seemingly on the surface unrelated categories of stories and news and conversations that are all lumped together as either the blockchain industry or the crypto industry or whatever you want to call it. So why do we discuss these things? Why do we debate about these things like they're part of the same category? Well, there are a few reasons. The first is the most obvious, that they have a similar underlying technology. Inevitably, however, any new technology innovation is going to ultimately find its way to mature in different types of business or consumer-facing contexts where it no longer matters as much what the underlying and hidden inputs are in the system but only what the end result is for the end user or the end business case. I believe we're starting to see that break where it becomes less and less interesting to talk about them in terms of the inputs and more and more interesting to talk about these things in terms of their outputs and impact. A second part of the reason that we talk about these things in the same terms or as they're part of the same thing is that they have historically been competing for a constrained set of resources and a constrained narrative space. So. What I mean by that is that there has historically been only so much interest available to blockchain slash Bitcoin slash crypto slash Ethereum slash DeFi slash whatever in the basis of attention, time, money, talent, etc. And so by speaking in this way, we are actually competing to make people who are looking in from the outside think that that space is about the thing that we care most about and we're invested in. There is, to some extent, in the short term, a zero-sum game between companies who want to build around the Bitcoin protocol and want to get people to care about that versus companies who want to build around DeFi and want people to care about that. Now, that zero-sum game is, I think, a constraint that is very time-bound, but it is a real thing, and so it's understandable, at least in some ways, that that fight has been happening. This relates to point three about why these conversations, why these topics have been lumped together, which is that from the outside looking in, there's only so much headspace that any outside observer has, and so they have been lumped together. There hasn't been necessarily a big, clear differentiation between the nuanced parts of this space. And realistically, we're still in a context where we're dealing with memes and narratives that have resulted from that competition that have impacts today. Look at the way that governments talk about blockchain, not Bitcoin, just as one example of that. There has been this pressure from the outside in that everything that we're doing here in this crypto industry, quote unquote, even though it feels so differentiated, has been lumped together. A fourth and final issue, though, is that the public spaces where we discuss crypto and this industry and everything around it reward enemy making. If you look at people who have been able to rapidly grow their following on social media, it tends not to be on the basis of just adding value or being a really good steward of an idea. It tends more often to be picking a tribe, figuring out the memes that get that tribe excited, and going to war with other tribes. 
And this is not a Bitcoin only, this is certainly not a crypto only phenomenon. This is very much about the structure of the algorithms that drive social media, be it Twitter or Reddit or whatever. But it is a real factor that does shape our industry to this day. So what's the takeaway on all this? Why did I decide to do an entire episode about this? Well, one, it was a way to tie together five disconnected news stories on a day that there wasn't really clearly a banner headline news story. So take that for what you will. But two, it is something that I actually think about a lot, that a lot of our time and energy and attention is spent on these never-ending debates about whether people should care about this thing versus that thing and whether they can coexist, when it might be better to spend that time on, well, literally anything else. However, this isn't a morality lesson. And like I said, I do think that the public spheres in which we engage reward this sort of combativeness, right? So what are you going to do about it? I also think that there is a sort of self-defense mechanism that these communities go through where by having this contest internally, they actually strengthen their defenses when it comes to external challenges and other attack surfaces. So I don't even want to mitigate that there is some value in the fight. However, I do believe that by recognizing that this industry is maturing into several subcategories that either are already, in the case perhaps of Bitcoin, or will potentially be in the future, their own categories unto themselves, we actually do ourselves a service as it relates to those external forces and people coming in. I believe that there is going to be more attention focused on this industry going forward. I think that the way that governments are responding to Libra is exemplary of that. I think that every time Bitcoin is pronounced dead, but then continues to be the best performing asset in the world, it brings more attention. And I think that it would be better if we're able to better help people navigate to where they are naturally interested, right? There is that resource competition. Of course, we want our thing, our area of this world to define the rest of it. And I also think that there's good arguments that these things aren't mutually exclusive and that you should be rooting for multiple at the same time. However, I also think that when it comes to new people coming in and new institutions coming in and new resources coming in, they are going to have intrinsic biases towards different parts of this industry that get them interested. I don't think that forcing all of them to go through a gauntlet of my thing is the only real thing here is going to be helpful as compared to just letting them go find where their interests match their resource allocations, right? Let the money that wants to go into settlement solutions for traditional equities go find it, and then from there get them into Bitcoin. I don't think that we lose much by that. In fact, I think that we do better by allowing money to find where it's most interested and getting their hooks in somehow. That's my little rant for today. Mostly, like I said, it was just a way to connect the news on a day where there was a lot of disconnected news. But it is something, as I said, that I've thought about a lot, and I want to know what you guys think now. So hit me up on Twitter at NLW. Let me know if you also see what I'm seeing where the crypto industry, quote unquote, is actually fragmenting into a number of sub-industries all trying to mature, you know, in an interrelated perhaps, but ultimately independent way. Anyways, guys, thanks for listening. I appreciate you. And I will catch you tomorrow with another episode of The Breakdown. Peace. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Friday, February 21st, and today we are going to start by diagnosing the dip 
We're going to be discussing some theories for why the Bitcoin price fell so dramatically a little earlier this week in such a short amount of time. Second, we're going to be talking about fire in the exchange funding market and what it might mean for what type of products investors are interested in. And third and finally, we're going to take a little hop, skip, and a jump over to the world of central bank digital currencies, looking at both Sweden, who has announced some interesting tests, as well as analysis around the impact of coronavirus on China's digital currency plans. Let's break it down. We had been feeling pretty good about this 10K number. It had gone up to 10K and then fallen and then gone back up and then fallen and then gone back up again. And we were getting pretty settled at that level. When all of a sudden on Wednesday, the price dumped something like 6% in under five minutes. It was this huge, huge fall off. And we've more or less stayed at this 9,500 to 9,600 level ever since then. So the most common analysis that I saw on what happened had to do with Binance and Coinbase going down at the same time. Both of the sites had unscheduled maintenance, and that creates potential liquidity issues not to mention concerns of volatility or concerns of hacks, right? Because at the beginning of Binance going down, we weren't sure what the answer was. It wasn't clear why the the site was going down. And so you potentially have a scenario where if you have uh, major providers of liquidity who are going offline and a few whales who can dump on the market, potentially you see this sort of dip. So that's the analysis that I saw from a number of people like Maddie Greenspan and others. And I'm not sure what the answer is. This is a little above my pay grade when it comes to actual market analysis. However, what I will say is that it is a reminder to me of the significance that a small handful of actors, particularly exchanges, have in determining confidence in the markets at any given time. And I think that that's something that we always have to keep an eye on. Earlier this week, Coinmetrics also did a study around concentration of wealth within different asset communities. And I think it's part and parcel of the same conversation, which is that if we are operating in an ecosystem, which is theoretically free from the ability for people to manipulate and debase the currency or whatever we're trying to escape from the old financial system, yet wealth, i.e. power, is concentrated in a very small number of hands. And in the cases of exchanges, we have not only power in terms of actual liquidity, but also influence in terms of market sentiment. The point is that if power is concentrated in a few hands, it becomes potentially an approximation of what we're trying to leave behind. So my sense is that this is something that we shouldn't be worried about per se in terms of this specific instance, but it is something that we should continuously be vigilant about, right? And ask how we make sure that we're not just reliant on single points of failure. Today, as I'm recording this, we're getting another example of just how much Binance can dominate a news cycle. Both The Block and Coindesk are reporting on a memo from Malta saying that Binance is not registered there, and Binance is saying that they've never been registered there, but we all remember a tour a year ago where they seem to be touting the fact that they were in Malta, and their official defense is basically that they're based in many places, they've never had a single jurisdiction, they're decentralized, whatever, and honestly, I'm not even really sure why this particularly matters or why we care about where they're based, except in so far as, I guess, if it looks deceptive. But the point is that, again, they're dominating a news cycle for what effectively is kind of a non-story. So that's just another indicator of the power that Binance has relative to the rest of the industry. 
It is interesting to see then that we continue to find the most invested category, or at least one of the most invested categories in the entire crypto and crypto adjacent ecosystem is in exchanges. For as much power as this generation of exchanges have, it's clear that there is belief that this is not fixed, permanent, or inevitable for the future. The first exchange news comes with regard to the Hong Kong-based BC group who operate OSL, which is an institutional-focused crypto exchange. Fidelity International has invested $14 million into the exchange operator. And again, to me, this is another example of one of those stories where the big interesting thing isn't necessarily the number, but is about the company who is investing. The fact that it's this globally renowned asset manager in Fidelity International obviously has implications for understanding who is spending time looking in at the Bitcoin and crypto markets. But in some ways, this was the second fiddle news when it comes to exchange fundraising to FTX. FTX has hit the trading scene in crypto with incredible force. This is a company that's something like nine months old who are already seeing billions in volume of derivatives trading. And the block reported yesterday that they are out raising an equity round at a billion dollar plus valuation, which if that comes to fruition would make them one of the fastest growing unicorns in startup history. Now, it should be noted that the block report is saying that they're seeking to raise an equity round at that valuation, not that it is completed. And as anyone who's ever raised venture capital knows, the money is not there until it's actually in the bank. However, I think it doesn't take away anything from the ascent and the incredible rapid growth of FTX. This is an exchange that has perfectly captured the zeitgeist of the crypto markets now, the shifting and growing focus on derivatives. They've even done interesting things like created futures markets around current presidential candidates. And there is a sense among people who are in the know in crypto that if a new generation of exchanges is going to challenge the dominance of the actors we have, it's going to be led by companies like FTX. So something very interesting to watch and a reminder in this case that for as much as we might be concerned about power concentration and influence concentration among leading exchanges and companies like that, there are contenders. Let's end this Friday breakdown with a quick trip through the status of the battle around central bank digital currencies and their competitors. So First, we saw yesterday news out of Sweden. Sweden's central bank is beginning to start testing its digital currency that it calls the e-krona. The pilot, which is being built with R3's Corda network and is being supported by Accenture, is designed initially to run until February of next year, so a year, but could extend farther. Now, there are two interesting details about this announcement for me. The first is what I believe is an under-discussed issue as relates to central bank digital currencies, which is the way in which they potentially make central banks compete with commercial banks. So Reuters wrote, this revised role in the payment system could lead to individuals holding money in risk bank accounts, something that would overhaul the distinction between central and commercial banks, risk bank being the uh, Bank of Sweden, the Federal Reserve of Sweden. It strikes me that one of the headwinds for central bank digital currencies could be this new competition that it creates with central banks who aren't going to want to give up that role in the economy. Now, the other interesting detail came from the actual statement itself that said the e-krona would, quote, reduce the risk of the krona's position being weakened by competing private currency alternatives. So again, we are back to Libra and this idea that 
governments and part of why they're responding is that they are afraid of currencies that are being issued by corporations, right? And in particular, I think, as is obvious, the Libra. So really interesting to see this play out in real time, not just theoretically, but to see central banks explicitly acknowledging that they are reacting to that type of threat. Now, the other threat and reason that central banks are so actively engaging in this digital currency battle is China. China has made it very clear that they are working towards a digital yuan, and banks like Japan's are very nervous about the type of economic influence that this might give them. Well, this week we saw some indication about how people involved with China's central bank are viewing the coronavirus and what it might do as it relates to the digital currency project. China's economy is still effectively shut down right now, with no clear end in sight, despite some rhetoric here and there. Some have taken that to mean that the digital currency project could be moved back. However, the former president of the People's Bank of China in an interview with China Daily towards the end of last week, the beginning of this week, said that it might actually speed things up, that the efficiency, cost-effectiveness, and convenience make it even more desirable during an epidemic. This is interesting also in the context of the role of physical cash in potentially spreading the virus. The government has actually quarantined old paper notes and distributed new notes in the areas where the virus outbreak actually happened. So this is an interesting little wrinkle in the story of how the coronavirus might impact the economy in our crypto sector and beyond. Now, as I was recording this, we actually had a bit of interesting news coming out of Libra. Libra was, of course, the catalyst for so much of this activity, but has been beset by many, many challenges, many regulatory, but also companies and members of the Libra Association dropping out. Well, for the first time in a long time, we've had an announcement about a new company that is joining. Shopify has joined the Libra Association as of a blog post this morning on Friday. The post said, Our mission has always been to support the entrepreneurial journey of more than 1 million merchants on our platform. That means advocating for transparent fees and easy access to capital, and ensuring the security and privacy of our merchants' customer data. We want to create an infrastructure that empowers more entrepreneurs around the world. So to me, this makes much more sense than legacy companies like Visa and MasterCard being involved with Libra. Libra is an assault on the traditional financial order as it relates to money, and certainly it makes sense for Visa and MasterCard to keep their enemies close, so to speak, by being involved so they have an insight into what's going on. But when it comes to real alignment, you have to think that it's these companies that are destabilizing and fundamentally challenging the old world that those institutions were built around. Put differently, the most ideal partner in the world for Libra would be Amazon, and the only reason that's not going to happen is that I assume that at some point we're going to see Bezos bucks too. Whatever happens with Libra, though, it is very clear, very, very clear that tech is looking increasingly to get in on the game of finance. We saw it even yesterday with news that Patreon would start to get into the business of effectively payday loans for their creators, right, where they would be doing cash advances for their creators. And now on the one hand, this makes complete sense, right? They have data about the track record of creators and what money is likely to come in, so there's no reason they can't advance that. However, at the same time, it shows very clearly that in their calculus, growth is going to come from financial institution-like factors, not just building this great service where fans connect to the favorite creators. The point is, again, that whatever happens with Libra, 
the tech assault on finance is in full swing, and it's going to keep playing out, and it's hard to see how it ends. But for now, guys, I think I've given you plenty to think about for a Friday. I'm headed off for a good weekend chilling at home with my family. I hope you are headed to something fun or something calming or whatever it is that you need. Thanks as always for listening. I will be back breaking down the news with you on Monday. Peace, guys.